0: Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes related to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, Rod Davis. This is episode 38, and I'm very excited to say that this week it is an interview with Professor Rob Reisch from Stanford University. Um, now, I've been a big admirer of uh, Rob's work for a long time and his work's been a, a big influence on me. So I was absolutely delighted uh, to have the chance to to talk to him. Um, and you will probably be able to tell from the tone of the interview, which I hope stays just about the right side of fawning. But we had the chance to talk uh, in particular because Rob has a new book out uh, called Just Giving, uh, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better. Um, which I thoroughly recommend as a read to anybody who's interested in in issues around philanthropy and power and democracy and inequality, because it's um, a real kind of crystallisation of, of his work over the last ten years or so in this area. And there's some some really kind of important uh, ideas and themes in there. So we had a, a good chat about the book, uh, kind of covering you know what it was that had motivated him to to write it. Um, perhaps, you know, why he thought that philanthropy had been poorly served as a as a subject for kind of political theory and political philosophy over the years. Uh, then sort of asking him whether he thought that uh, his book kind of fit into a wider backdrop in which people are starting to, to ask more critical questions of philanthropy. Obviously, there's quite a number of other books out at the moment and some sort of high profile criticisms of philanthropy um and then we kind of dug into some of the the um content of uh, of the book and the ideas in it um particularly some of the criticisms that he levels at the the way in which tax incentives for philanthropy work uh and the sort of core idea of the book which is that philanthropy and particularly sort of big donor philanthropy um has a distorting effect on democracy Uh, and then sort of to to round things off more positively we talked about some of the ways in which these kind of downsides of philanthropy could be counteracted and it could be made uh, more of a sort of positive force within society so I hope you enjoy the chat without further ado we'll go straight into it uh, and then I will be back at the end of the podcast just to do a little bit of housekeeping and tidying up okay Great. Uh, I'm here with Rob Reich, as I'm uh, reliably informed when I saw you at the, the LSE. Is that right? Is it Reish? Yeah. Yeah, okay. right. I, <laughs> I got it. I got it. That's the first time I learned that the other day, but it was good to be
1: corrected. The family mispronunciation. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I hope see anyone to get that one right.
0: Go oh, right out of the gate. Um, but yeah, it's it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Cause I've been a, a big sort of admirer of your work and followed it for a long time and, and was lucky enough, as I say, to see you speak at the LSE um, not very long ago. Um, and you're, you've got a new book out, uh, which is called "Just Giving: uh, Why Philanthropy's Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better." So um, maybe you know a good place to start would be for you just to give a bit of background on what the book's about and kind of what motivated you to write it.
1: Sure. Well, thanks so much for having having me on the uh, the podcast. It's really a pleasure to be here and to have a chance to speak with you. Um, I'll give you two short answers to the uh, question about the the book and the the motivation behind it. Uh, The first one is one that I think you and hopefully listeners too will appreciate, which is that, um, of course, I'm an academic. I've been working within a university setting um, for about 20 years, and uh, uh, my own disciplinary training is as a philosopher, a political philosopher in particular. And as I came to think about questions about philanthropy um, a bunch of years ago, uh, I was surprised to see how little scholarly inquiry, um, there happens to be into such questions. And I don't mean that just in the kind of typical way. And a scholar would say the literature is very thin on a certain type of approach. I mean, this in a more systematic way, in the sense that you have entire schools of business, for example, devoted to scholars on questions about corporations and the marketplace, and you have entire departments of public policy or political science or schools of government devoted to scholarly inquiry with respect to public institutions, democratic institutions and in life. Uh, and there's this third sector of civil society, nonprofits, foundations, charitable trusts, et cetera, that has nothing like the scholarly infrastructure of academics devoted to studying it. So uh, among the motivations I have for the book are to, to highlight the desperate need, in my view, for more scholarship across disciplinary lines on questions about philanthropy. So that's at a broad level. Um, the book is really about how to understand the role of philanthropy within democratic societies, and of course, not just descriptively let's look at the landscape or historical evolution of the role that charity and philanthropy have played, but rather to try to establish a a philosophical or normative standard by which to assess the actual role of philanthropy. Um, Many people who work within nonprofits and foundations are familiar with the language of effective philanthropy or strategic giving. The idea that when you're giving money away or if you work in a not-for-profit organization, a non-governmental organization, you should have a kind of um, strategic orientation and measurable outcomes. And one way to think about my book is that we have to first understand what we want nonprofits or what we want philanthropy to be effective at. Merely having a goal and being strategic at meeting it doesn't yet tell us that that's a salutary or welcome function within a democratic setting. We have to know that the goal is something that's compatible with or supportive of democracy. And one of the simple starting places of the book is to observe that big philanthropy, in particular the activity of wealthy people directing private assets for some public benefit or public influence, is virtually definitionally a plutocratic element in a democratic setting the effort of people to use the size of their wallet to have some public influence. And one might wonder what the role of especially wealthy people should be in a democratic setting when they're trying to use not their voice as a citizen, but their voice as a donor uh, in trying to bring about some type of public change. And, that's one way to orient anyone to begin to question how it is that philanthropy sits in relationship to a democratic society.
0: Um, and I just I want to pick up on something there, because I think it's sort of one of the, the fundamental ideas um, that you you kind of uh, explore in the book. And I've, I've seen you explore it before, but there is this idea that philanthropy is an odd thing because it's at one and the same time about the the kind of individual choices of donors. And that puts a focus on things like uh, individual choice and liberty. But then at the same time, it's become something that is also potentially at an aggregate level, a kind of a systematic means for redistribution within society. But if you think about it through that lens, you're immediately thinking about things like equality and equity and justice. And actually, a lot of the time, the confusion is because policymakers and others sort of switch between these two with little thought but to to kind of the the different mindset that you need to take and a lot gets lost in the middle why why do you think it is that that, that sort of systematic thinking about philanthropy as uh, as part of the institutional machinery of our society has had so little attention as as opposed to the kind of individual ethics and morality of philanthropy
1: it's a, it's a good question. I'm not sure I have a great diagnosis for why this has been, in, in my view, so systematically ignored. I, I guess I'd say that we've tended to um, um, uh, expect that the historical meaning of charity, the almsgiving tradition of providing assistance to the disadvantaged or the poor, has carried over into the present day. When all of the emphasis in a lot of current rhetoric, as you point out, on the liberty of the donor or the fact that charity is distinguished and perhaps made especially virtuous by its voluntariness, uh, that this is an example not of coercive redistribution and taxation, but the welcome efforts of individuals to provide assistance for other people. And so there the emphasis gets placed on the liberty or voluntary nature of the of the donation But we often then lose track of whether or not the distributive outcomes of charity, uh, which uh, many people believe are historically connected to an improvement in equality, uh, um, are in fact in place. And the fact of the matter is that when you look at the distribution of philanthropic dollars, whether they're in the U.S. or in any other country, a shockingly small percentage goes to the assistance of the poor or you know, redistribution in any uh, broad sense in the tradition that we think of when we hear the word charity. So ju- I just want to re- re- affirm basically or underscore that the this story about charity as having something quintessentially to do with equality, um, almsgiving and assistance for others in need, And the story about charity having something to do with liberty, the liberty of the donor to do something that's strictly voluntary, Um, those two frames um, are common within charity uh, as we think about them. But in fact, they pull in different directions.
0: Yeah, I, I think it—you know—it's a really good insight. And I, I, in concrete terms, for people listening to this, um, you know, the the place you certainly identify that tension as playing out a lot, I think, is in the way in which uh, tax incentives for for individual donations are structured. Um, and you you have this sort of taxonomy, which I've, I've talked about actually at some length on the podcast before, which I can reference back rather than going into detail here. But between The idea that you should understand these as a subsidy for particular public goods that the state would otherwise have to provide, or whether it should be understood better as a generalised subsidy for a sort of pluralistic civil society. And, you know, I I think that latter one uh, works and that kind of... um, you know you can kind of square the circle in a way around donor choice and the idea that you should support uh there should be governmental support for civil society but what i wonder is do you think governments actually in practice do view uh the tax treatment of donations in that way or do you think actually most of the time if they're thinking about it at all they are seeing it as a way of getting money from outside that can subsidize or replace public expenditure
1: I can speak more knowledgeably about the situation in the U S and so maybe you can fill in um, your own assessment of the answer to this question for, uh, for, you know, the setting that you're, you're familiar with in, in the UK. But I mean, in the, in the US, um, I think the current type of, um, you know, roughly speaking, neoliberal orientation, a sort of multi-generational project of the arise of a, a certain type of conservative orientation has indeed looked to these tax incentives or tax subsidies as a way to shift off of the public ledger um, various types of responsibilities to individual giving and individual donors. So that if various types of social services can be provided not through taxation and through public agencies delivering the services, but rather through private donation and private non-governmental organizations delivering the services, this is in certain respects preferable. Having said that, I also want to add, however, that if you look at the history, the legislative history in the United States of the um, the creation of tax incentives for charitable giving, and the various ways in which they've been changed over the course of decades, then you'll discover pretty quickly that there's no, you know. Th- single theoretical framework. In fact, it's just a kind of aggregation of small decisions over the course of many years, amounting to a complete hodgepodge of a policy structure. The kaleidoscopic array of nonprofit organizations that are eligible to receive tax incentivized or tax deductible donations in the U.S. is not the product of a single law passed at a certain moment in time to try to establish a nonprofit sector, but rather the aggregation of many decades worth of small incremental changes with no rhyme or reason to them altogether. And right now in the United States, we have what I've described in the book as a kind of anything goes approach to the nonprofit sector in which, you know, short of actual profiteering or, or, um, you know, kind of self-interested, uh, um, uh, um, services, uh, almost any purpose, uh, can be described, um, legally as serving a, a, non- um, the need for a nonprofit sector. And so, um, 99% of applications in the United States for, um, being identified as a public charity or a nonprofit organization are approved by the United States government. There is hardly any oversight at all of the nonprofit profit sector.
0: And and I would say on that, you know, my, my understanding at least of the introduction of the incentives in the US was that it was quite heavily linked with a sort of pragmatic need during the First World War to raise uh, revenue. I'm, the situation in, in the UK is much worse in that it was essentially... A kind of historical blunder on the part of the government that never wanted to introduce individual tax breaks in the first place, but um, that's sort of by, by the by. Um, just in terms of what you were saying there about the the sort of proliferation of of uh, causes within the U.S. nonprofit sector. And, I mean, one of the things you talk about in the book as a possible defence of particularly particularly the tax treatment of donations, but just the idea of philanthropy more broadly, when you're talking about more kind of mass market donations is this idea that you can decentralize choice and power when it comes to the selection of public goods um and at least in theory it seems to me that's very compelling do you do you think that that is a possible justification or that the kind of the reality of the fact that there always ends up being a a bias towards wealthy people and a kind of plutocratic bias gets in the way of that
1: right good so the Uh, You're right that in the book, I I argue that a compelling justification for charitable donations and the establishment of a a civil society, um, you know, sector with nonprofits and associational life more generally is just what you described, the kind of pluralistic um, arena For a diverse and contestatory approach to establishing um, 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 what should count as a public benefit or a a social good. And the the core of the view there is is something that's rooted in an understanding of what would be healthy in a democratic setting. So democracies, of course, expect that um, a majority of our representatives, or if we're in some direct democracy, majority of citizens... Have to agree on something in order for their policy to be passed, or for you know taxation and distributions to be made um, by our legislature or people who represent us, and that means that the official definition, the official sort of orthodoxy of what counts as a public benefit, will always be subject to you know what often gets called a majoritarian constraint. And in you know, say, good John Stuart Mill fashion here, the desires of an eccentric or experimental minority, um, or a persistent minority, will never be able to find expression in a formal democratic setting because uh, they won't be able to assemble majority to authorize the distribution of funds for some particular project. So I don't want a completely decentralized um, arena of public good production, but I want there to be a partially decentralized uh, mechanism for allowing experimentation and a diversity of of public good definitions or or attempts to provide social goods, which maybe downstream do rise to the level of becoming a majority where then public funding gets attached, or then maybe not. And the civil society arena and charitable contributions can be defended on the basis of there being um, a welcome and indeed essential place for a civil society arena that allows different people to provide different types of social benefits or public goods um, in a way that won't ever meet the test of a, an official uh, majority uh, um, uh, constraint or a majority kind of threshold of approval within the formal settings of democratic government. But let me add here, just emphatically, the most important element of this is that the the policy mechanism designed to stimulate these charitable contributions in this diverse arena that in the case we've just been talking about, this is the tax incentive, should not be a policy mechanism that systematically weights the influence of the wealthy who already have a comparatively greater um, means to provide contributions to civil society or nonprofit organizations. The policy mechanism should give equal standing to every citizen to cast their own idiosyncratic preferences or eccentric ideas about social benefits and public goods into civil society. And in the U.S. and in other places, the policy mechanism is something that reinforces a plutocratic bias rather than um, providing for this democratically decentralized mechanism of um, associational life. And
0: and on that, yeah, you obviously you may make, make the point in the book, and you made there that the the the, the tax um, deduction, particularly in the U.S., but more generally, sort of tax incentives, uh, kind of exacerbate the, the the plutocratic bias. So the government is kind of supporting it and making it worse. If we assumed for a moment that there there was no tax uh, relief on donations, even then there would be a sort of a lesser plutocratic bias simply by virtue of the fact that wealthy people have more assets available than to kind of weight their their public choice do you think there's any argument for the government kind of taking you know going even further and taking an active role in sort of smoothing that picture out or rebalancing the weighting so that you do get a sort of a genuinely um kind of consistent approach to people being able to express uh, choice through either through philanthropy or some some other sort of means of within civil society?
1: Yeah, I do think there are, I'd point to two different things um, um, a a democratic society can and I think should do to try to smooth, as you described it, the the inequalities of resources that then individuals have to deploy for their preferred civil society projects. So the first such mechanism would be um, to provide... uh, um, a, a narrower band of officially eligible um, charitable recipients of, of nonprofit or charitable contributions. So the US has, a, as I described before, a kind of anything goes approach. You could um, more uh, strictly limit the organizations that were eligible to receive charitable donations in the same way, for example, that you might think about campaign finance contributions or. Um, 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 political donations. Uh, It seems not merely compatible with, but potentially required by a democracy um, to place limits on the amount of money that people can give for electioneering purposes. And we might think similarly that there are appropriate limits to be imposed on people for funding their preferred civil society organizations, even in the absence of tax incentives for them. Um, Secondly, Uh, And perhaps um, more uh, easily brought about through policy is to try to put in place what I describe in the book as a civil society stakeholding grant or the idea that all citizens, independent of their tax contributions or independent of their background wealth, should receive from the state a kind of tax credit or a, a you know, lump sum that then they can use to distribute to their preferred civil society organizations. And this would, in the end, have to be funded through um, uh, ordinary tax collections, which is to say that wealthy people then would be effectively helping to make possible the expanded voice of the middle class and the poor – for their voices to have some weight within the contributions they make to civil society organizations.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, idea. I mean, I guess as, as you say, kind of in policy terms, it's um, it's potentially quite a, a big ask. But actually, if you're going back to what we were saying at the start, if you're genuinely trying to think about philanthropy, you know, from a sort of political theory or a kind of political philosophy point of view, and you address these problems, these are the sorts of conclusions that that naturally. Um, fall out of, of thinking about it in those terms. Um, I just wanted to move on because I, I, I'm i aware kind of the the time that we've got but one of the, the other big um, areas of focus in the book is around foundation philanthropy. I think there's kind of you've got a lot of uh, specific things to say about the idea of kind of institutional philanthropy and particularly endowed institutions that exist for long time periods or In perpetuity. Do you want to just say something about kind of what your particular criticism around perpetuity in particular is?
1: Yeah, uh, well, here I am again, inspired in part by John Stuart Mill, who wrote uh, wonderfully and powerfully about the problems of perpetuity. Um, uh, I mean, the quick way to to express this is that perpetuity represents uh, a mechanism, a legal mechanism for the preferences of dead people to reign over the preferences of a current generation. Um, the, The especially powerful phrase that comes out of tax law is that the dead hand of a donor stretches out of the grave to strangle the preferences of all future generations. And so by having a legal mechanism that defends the donor's discretion even beyond his death, is to inscribe in law the particular narrow charitable purpose that anyone might um, identify and um, not to allow future generations to uh, assess whether that purpose continues to be socially important or, in fact, whether it's become a purpose that's obsolete. Um, And uh, there are some mechanisms um, that are available for casting aside the preferences of dead people when those preferences have become um, themselves illegal, uh, I, what I have in mind there is, you know, say in the American South, before the civil rights movement, various people uh, made charitable contributions to establish public parks that were um, to be available only for white people. And in the wake of the civil rights Movement, of course, that became unconstitutional. But even there, the mechanisms for casting aside the preferences of the dead are extremely difficult and require extensive legal battles. So I'm in favor of long time horizons for philanthropy, but not a time horizon that is perpetual. So I think time-limited endowments uh, um, or periodic reviews by um, democratically assembled and authorized um, sort of governors or trustees of the purpose of charitable endowments is in fact um important in a democracy and that we shouldn't allow the dead to govern the living.
0: Yeah, and I mean certainly here in the UK, that tension uh between the the sort of the the wishes of of the departed the long departed and the needs of the present has been a massive sort of shaping force in in terms of the way that our own uh charity and philanthropic sector uh looks. And I think it, it is true when you start to think about it that perpetuity with no mechanism for at the very least democratic review seems quite difficult, difficult to sort of continue to justify. And um, you just touched there on, on saying that, um, you know, you, you whilst you think perpetuity might be problematic, you were in favour of the idea of a long time horizon when it comes to philanthropy. And and this, one of the things I really wanted to ask you about was the idea of discovery that you talk about in the book. Because you, you say there that, you know, one of the the really kind of arguable strengths of philanthropy, particularly institutional philanthropy like foundations, is the ability they have to experiment and innovate outside of the the sort of strictures of short-term market cycles and political cycles. And and I certainly agree with that. Um, What I wondered was, is there a conflict between that idea and what we've already been talking about when it comes to the idea of uh, seeing philanthropy as anti-democratic? Because it sort of strikes me that that only really works precisely because institutional philanthropy is able to run counter to uh, at least the status quo or the kind of democracy of the time.
1: Yeah, uh, this is the the heart of the political philosophy in the book, is getting at um, exactly this question. And, you know, one way to put it in my mind is um, to ask whether it's possible for the legal framework of philanthropy and the social norms that attach to it, to domesticate the activities of plutocratic voices so that they serve rather than subvert democratic goals and aims. And it, I mean, let me just flesh that out a bit by saying that again, definitionally, the activity of big philanthropy is the insertion of a plutocratic element within a democratic setting. And furthermore, um, this is the kind of you know, punchline of the critique of big philanthropy that big philanthropy is an exercise of power by trying to direct private assets for some public influence. It's an exercise of power that's mostly unaccountable, um, mostly non-transparent, donor directed by default perpetual and tax advantaged. So you have a plutocratic voice that um, is unaccountable, non-transparent, donor directed by default perpetual and tax advantaged in a democratic setting. And it seems just as you said that this is um, in deep tension with ordinary expectations of political equality in a democratic society, and that it's a misplaced institutional element in a democracy. So I then try to explore, because I think this is the appropriate way of trying to come to terms with philanthropy, uh, how uh, philanthropy, big philanthropy might nevertheless fit within a democratic setting if it were subjected to different types of um, laws and if there were some different social norms that attached to it. And the goal here is to try to understand philanthropy in relation to the marketplace and re- relationship to the public agencies of a democratic government. And it, it's to turn the unaccountability of the philanthropist from a vice into a certain type of virtue. Uh, the time horizon question here is crucial. So what the philanthropists can do that helps a democratic setting is to try to take a longer time horizon, experimental approach to social innovation. In the marketplace, people are subject to investor pressures, um, competitors in the marketplace. There are short time horizons built into the activity of, say, R&D within a a corporate setting. Similarly, in a democratic um, public agency, Uh, People have to stand for election and the idea of investing public funds in a kind of risky experimental approach to public policy that might show benefits if it shows benefits at all, only in 10 years or 20 years time horizon out, is not something that routinely will get people reelected to their positions. So what philanthropy can do, and in fact, I think this is the role it should play if it plays any role at all, is to undertake this important process of social discovery in a democratic society by undertaking these experimental long time horizon, kind of risky, risky in the sense of many of them will fail uh, 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 approaches to policy innovation or policy experimentation in small settings that then ultimately are presented, the successful versions of which are presented to a democratic public for affirmation or a stamp of democratic approval, if in fact they've been shown to be useful and important in a democratic society. Um, sitting behind this entire view, and here you know, for the kind of political science or political philosopher wonks in the crowd, um, core to this view is the idea that what justifies democracy in the first place, or what makes democracy a valuable form of political organization as opposed to non-democratic societies, is the idea that democratic governance, democratic institutions are especially effective mechanisms for social problem solving. And uh, what democracy can do is to provide an extra governmental source of experimentation and innovation that philanthropy can represent. And when big philanthropists attempt to experiment in these ways, still humble with respect to democratic government. In other words, not declaring themselves trying to do something that's better than what government itself can do, but rather experimenting on behalf of a democratic society in long time horizon innovations, then this indeed is something that can serve democratic ideals rather than undermine them because they're in keeping with this experimentalist social problem solving approach to democracy in the first place.
0: Absolutely. Do you do you think on that that there's potentially a sort of a practical challenge, um, which which is that with the with the benefit of hindsight, looking at examples where philanthropy has powerfully played that role historically, we, we sort of it's easy because we know which side won or which which of the the things that were tested and the discoveries managed to to pan out. It's more difficult in the here and now, I suppose, to know. What, where the line is between a, a genuine sort of philanthropic big bet and something that verges on on kind of, you know, lunacy or just self-indulgence. And, and I'm thinking here that there is, I think, at the moment, some controversy about the approach um, that a number of philanthropists, particularly from the sort of Silicon Valley background, take to the idea of existential threats. Um, you know, and, and I do think that, you know, From a utilitarian point of view, absolutely, there's an argument that if you're measuring things purely in terms of lives saved and you don't see any distinction between present lives and future lives, it absolutely makes sense to plough a lot of money into looking at the possibility of AI outbreak and things like this. But then I think others would justifiably question whether they've overstepped a line and actually they need to be sort of reined back in and that the democracy should should clip their wings a little bit. Do Do you think there's any sort of tension there?
1: I do. And the the mechanism that I have to try to manage that tension, the mechanism I have in mind to manage that tension is to try to export from um, the setting of academia to the setting of philanthropy, a system of peer review, for example. So what I would wish the Philanthropists of Silicon Valley who are devoting their their philanthropic uh, resources to these existential threats as you describe them, you know, on the borderline between valuable social experimentation and lunacy, um, perhaps. (laughs) um, I wouldn't want the law to constrain the idiosyncratic eccentric ideas of experimentation by any individual donor, but I would want there to be a kind of reputational marketplace in which the philanthropist was obligated to make fully transparent not merely the funding you know patterns or preferences but also the rationale behind them and therefore and there to come to pass a type of you know it, not legally binding but socially constraining mechanism of peer review and peer evaluation so what this means fundamentally and, and you know here is another kind of slogan of what i want to See the book try to contribute to is instead of expressing our civic gratitude to anyone who undertakes um, to be a philanthropist, uh, I think the appropriate approach of society is to direct our scrutiny to the projects of our greatest philanthropists um, in order that those projects are held up to account in a spirit of broad based inquiry about whether they're useful to a democratic society or not. And so whether or not the Silicon Valley inspired dreams of warding off existential threats are valuable or not is something that should be a, um, um, a subject for widespread social inquiry and assessment rather than the kind of occasionally secretive, not especially transparent efforts that do take place.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you, on that, that question there, you you said, um, you know, that one of the, the things I noticed when I so you speak about the book um, that you said was precisely that we seem to have moved from a historical position where there was plenty of big philanthropy, but actually the general public response was one of scrutiny and, and sort of justifiable questioning to one where it is kind of unquestioning thanks and praise. And that seems to be Problematic. Do you do you think do you get any sense that we're actually seeing a bit of a shift? Because obviously, you know, you've you've got this book out, and you've been kind of developing these ideas, and there are a number of other books. I mean, Anand Giridharadas's book um, was out recently, and there's a few others, kind of, uh, you know, of greater or lesser degrees of sympathy with philanthropy, trying to critique it uh, on the grounds of the influence it has on democracy or the kind of the impact it has on inequality. Do you get a sense that perhaps there is a bit of a, a shift in in opinion?
1: I I I hope that there is, and so I, I, maybe I'm too invested in the project of there being scrutiny rather than gratitude that any tiny little um, um, shred of evidence that suggests scrutiny I want to make um, um, larger than it actually is. Uh, I can speak somewhat more confidently about the U.S. setting than elsewhere, and. While we do see uh, an increasing amount of um, criticism from certain quarters, the Anand Yirada's book is a good example of it, I still think in general that the social attitude is praise and gratitude, um, uncritical or or, uh, um, automatic praise and gratitude. Um, And you can see this in the general reaction, I think, that most people have to Jeff Bezos's announcement about his two billion dollars—he's going to begin to give away. Um, the fact that ten years ago um, Bill and Melinda Gates are the people of the year on Time Magazine—the um, greatest—you know—magazines that celebrate uh, business successes also tend to celebrate philanthropic giving in an uncritical way. With you know the Forbes 100 list of our biggest donors, I still think in general the basic attitude is praise and. Um, uh um, uncritical appreciation. but uh, I'm hopeful that there might arise over the coming years a greater scrutiny. And I'd have to say I'm looking especially to journalists for that project because uh, I would want there to be much greater investigative journalism and critical attention from people who write in the media about this and something that gives me modest pause about whether to think that's going to come about is the fact that philanthropists now tend to fund um, media outlets to a greater degree than they used to because of the broken business model of the media, uh, whether it's in the Guardian-style you know, membership contribution approach or in the Jeff Bezos, I'll, I'll purchase the Washington Post, Lorene Powell Jobs, I'll buy the Atlantic Monthly, um, um, ProPublica, investigative journalism funded by uh, philanthropy as well. Um, these are welcome experiments in just the way i was describing before in terms of social innovation but will it be the case that investigative journalism as it were bites the hand that feeds it by directing greater scrutiny to philanthropy um that remains to be seen and i think that's an absolutely fascinating
0: topic i'm, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole just at the moment because we'd be here for ages but i should just flag up that actually I've uh just lined up a subsequent episode of this podcast to talk about exactly uh that issue so it'll be yeah, really kind of interesting to take those ideas on And um, just as a follow-up to what you were saying there i mean obviously one of your ambitions and hopes is that there is a kind of wider acceptance of the need to scrutinize uh philanthropy and that might come from uh journalists and it might might come from sort of policymakers what What is your sense or what has the reaction been so far from people within the world of philanthropy to the ideas and critiques that you've put forward, either individual philanthropists or kind of foundation leaders? Do they seem, you know, g- generally to feel like there's something
1: in them that they should be taking action off the back of them? I'd say I get a, a couple different reactions. From people who work within foundations but aren't the initial donors, or not the founder of the of the philanthropic entity, but the, the program manager, the program officer, I think anyone who's been in that type of position r- realizes the strange, unaccountable power that they have, um, and the world in which they operate is one, you know, as most foundation people um, observe at some point or another that. You know, one on one day you're working in the, the nonprofit sector trying to raise money for your organization. Then you you go to the other side of the um, the field, so to speak, and you begin to give the money away. And overnight, you become a better looking, funnier, and you know, smarter person. Um, and everyone is organized to try to extract money from um, the purse that you now have uh, uh, um, access to. And a program officer who works in a foundation and recognizes the strange power and unaccountable power that comes along with that role. So I, I find that when I speak to people who work in foundations, they um, uh, appreciate that I'm giving expression to something that they often felt. Now, do they want more scrutiny? Do they want even more um, regulation? There, I think the attitude is much more mixed. Um you know, the fact of the matter is that working in a foundation is an especially comfortable type of social role. You get all types of social appreciation. You are someone who dispenses benefits to organizations that are desirous of them. And, um, you know, who doesn't like being better looking, um, funnier and uh, smarter in a social setting, um, even if that's an unearned uh, set of attributes. So, I get much more defensive reactions from some philanthropists who are the initial donors who I think appreciate gratitude rather than scrutiny. And then still others I think are happy to have a broader conversation. I mean, here I'm speculating, but sometimes I think that especially wealthy people perhaps um, even more, especially once they create a foundation have become accustomed to a social environment in which people defer to them or say yes to them rather than give them honest feedback. And um, some of the people I've encountered in big philanthropy, um, rather than being defensive, they view the kinds of questions I ask as uh, an honest um, and welcome beginning of a conversation. And uh, having philanthropy taken seriously by scholars rather than ignored, is itself, um, for some people, a welcome thing. Um, I'll give you a good example of this. In two weeks, I'm going up to Seattle to give a talk about the book, and I'll be joined in Seattle by Jeff Rakes, who was the CEO of the Gates Foundation for a number of years. He's currently the chair of the Board of Trustees at Stanford University. And I've had a number of conversations with him over the years, when he was the president of the Gates Foundation and um, in the years since then. And he has been uh, um, an, uh, a welcome interlocutor on these questions. And the fact that he's um, appearing with me on stage in his backyard in Seattle, I think, is a sign about the attitude that some big philanthropists have about the kinds of questions I'm asking.
0: Well, that's that's very encouraging to hear. And uh, yeah, it sounds that'll be a very interesting conversation. Um, I just I'm aware that we're in danger of going long, so I just want to kind of wrap things up and ask you, you one final question, which is um, something I came up during the the talk you gave at the LSE, and I'd imagine it's a question you've you've sort of been posed many times. But the the subtitle of your book, obviously, is why philanthropy is failing democracy and how it can do to better. Um but in to, in some senses at the moment we're at a point where a lot of people would argue that um democracy itself and particularly liberal democracy is going through a crisis or even arguably failing and some people might argue well actually you know maybe it's more about whether philanthropy can play a role in rescuing democracy and that might be by running counter to it for a little while do you, do you have any sympathy with that or do you think that's a sort of dangerous road to go
1: down right I, I think this is an important question because of course I I I agree entirely with the idea that uh liberal democracies are in a bit of a crisis and that the you know the government in the UK government here in the United States has all kinds of dysfunction um that um make it problematic to pursue uh um the ordinary role that citizens want to play within a democratic society. Uh so I'd point out the cosmetic or surface level tension behind the the idea that what plutocrats plutocrats can come to the rescue of democratic societies Um, as if um, the history of wealthy people um, in democratic settings was to reinforce democratic norms. Um, I I don't think history bears out that uh, that, uh, um, suggestion at all. But perhaps things have become so dysfunctional or so crisis ridden that what um, philanthropists can do is try to reinvigorate some elemental um, foundational norms of democratic societies. In the U.S., that would mean, for example, voting rights for citizens um, or the idea that compromise uh, amongst our politicians rather than um, rigid polarization and, and uh, um, the lack of the, our elected representatives actually to do the business of the people um, is possible. Um, so I'm open to the idea that philanthropists could indeed try to contribute to the revival of liberal democratic norms. I would just want to insist that as those experiments take place, they take place in the spirit of humility um, that's appropriate to the role of philanthropists. Rather than the more frequent types of invocations that I hear, which uh, kind of announce the philanthropists as the more effective, more enlightened, smarter set, the the kind of technocratic elites who want to engineer better democratic outcomes rather than do things alongside people as citizens. So I, what I have in mind here are things like the funding of grassroots organizations, the willingness to um, um, empower, people whose voices are currently less frequently heard, typically what we see in big philanthropy is the um, amplification of the voice and the preference of the donor, not so much the amplification of the voices of the um, dispossessed or the unempowered. And perhaps that's a way in which philanthropy could play a welcome role now, is by lifting up the voices of those who aren't heard rather than um making louder the voices of those who are already heard plenty enough and i
0: i mean i think you know there's there's a few interesting things happening there around things like participatory grant making and citizen grant making panels and just that whole idea of actually you know genuinely giving away power not just uh, money or wealth when you when you come to philanthropy uh it, it is obviously very compelling in theory i think that's often what's missing in practice right yeah. Anyway, I, I will let you go now, Rob, because I realize I'm in danger of running long. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, thanks so much for having me. No, well, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. It's great to uh, have an opportunity to chat about uh, all these issues that I think are absolutely fascinating and I could keep going all day. Um, I hope everything goes well with the, the promotion for the book. Um, and you know, hopefully, perhaps we can catch up again at some point in the future.
1: I'd welcome that. Uh, thanks so much. And uh, I'll hope to see you again in the future. And, I've learned a bunch from you as well, so I want to thank you for all your many contributions to this discussion.
0: Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, I certainly did, uh, as I'm sure you could tell. Uh, you know, it was wonderful to have a chance to talk to, to Rob uh, about issues that I've kind of been thinking about for the last 10 years or so, and as any listeners to the podcast will know, I'm sort of endlessly fascinated by. Um as i said uh you know at the start of the podcast i thoroughly recommend that you check out his book uh, and kind of dig out um you know any other things that that he's done over the years where he covers um, you know all the sorts of issues that we talked about in the podcast in far more detail if you're interested in those sorts of issues uh, i will humbly recommend that you could also check out uh, some of my stuff so particularly the giving thought pages at the caf website uh, or if you like things in bite-sized chunks you can follow me on twitter at rogery underscore h underscore davis Um, If you've got ideas for topics along those lines or others that we could cover in future episodes of the podcast or people I could interview, uh, drop me a line at at cafonline.org. Other than that, uh, like, subscribe to the podcast, tell all your friends about it, and I will see you next time. Bye!